Awesome. Dr. Jennifer Prenke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Of course, of course. So just to kick things off, do you mind walking through your background and uh, all the way up to what you do today? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is like, a, I have kind of, kind of a unusual background, even though it's not too unusual for data scientists. So uh, I'm originally a particle physicist. Uh, and I actually, uh, I mean, so I was, uh, this is something I always wanted to do. And so I'm an experimental particle physicist, which means like uh, I used to work like on uh, doing data analysis on the data that's collected for from uh, like large particle detectors. And so my story was I jumped into uh, data science and machine learning when basically like I graduated with my PhD like uh, at the end of the of the recession, the Great Recession. And so um, I gave it a try with a postdoc for a year and uh, the project I was really passionate about didn't get funded or at least not at the, to the extent that I, I was hoping for. So I went into like thinking like, you know what, like I really enjoy uh, data analytics and data at scale. And so I, I realized there was an entire industry or an entire space within the industry focused on making sets of data for uh, ad tech companies, for social media, for e-commerce and whatnot. So this is basically how I made the jump. And so, so I was lucky enough to like, uh, you know, like, uh, get, get a, a job in Silicon Valley and then I, I grew my career. Uh, and so soon enough, I got my first like, uh, uh, jobs, like, uh, you know, like, uh, for as a, as a manager, right? Uh, and, uh, so at that point, I realized, you know, like my job is getting very hard because now I have to deal with, uh, a large number of data scientists coming at me and complaining that they don't have enough servers and they don't have, you know, like, uh, the means to prepare the data they're going to work with. And so, uh, uh, all things in one, like, uh, the first few, few months of my, uh, my first managerial job was about like going to the CTO, begging for more resources and better computers. And I realized like I was not going to make it that easily because like you can have like the cost argument once, but you cannot go every month, like ask for 50% like more money for processing the data. Right. So I fell in love with this problem of like, you know, like trying to understand whether you truly need as much data as everybody thinks, right? And so I started doing my own research on, uh, you know, like, um, ways to basically, like, uh, do machine learning cost efficiently by reducing the amount of data first. And so I was, I was pretty successful. I discovered the concept known active learning. So active learning is basically like, a, it's like supervised learning, but you try to go step by step instead of throwing all of the data at once. And, uh, that worked pretty well for us. And so, uh, eventually, like, uh, uh, after a couple of uh, jobs uh, in, uh, in large companies and, uh, and uh, a startup that was focused on data preparation uh, called Figurate, I decided to start my own company to focus on that problem because, uh, as we all know today, like the consensus is that the more data, the better. And I'm, I sort of wanted to challenge that belief and bring solutions for smaller companies to be able to achieve profitability in machine learning. Amazing. Wow. What an impressive background. And, you know, particle physics to machine learning and artificial intelligence. Is there a lot of overlap there? In terms of skill set, it's extremely, extremely high. So basically, like, think of, like, a particle accelerator as, like, the, the one way where you can collect, like, massive amounts of data. In fact, the size of the data set I was dealing with as a, as a researcher were, like, uh, comparable to what you see in the industry today, even though I did my PhD, like, uh, in, like uh, basically, like, 12 years ago, right? I mean, so it's a... Uh, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does have a lot of overlap. Uh, a lot of the tools are, are not exactly the same ones, but 
obviously you're gonna use statistics you're gonna use you know like uh, the the same math or whatever to some extent i'm gonna say like uh, as a particle physicist you do have to understand the math that typically like uh, uh you, you would need to understand if you truly want to understand how uh, a machine learning model actually works i see i see and and uh th this whole idea that uh more data isn't always better and uh, a lot of times it's uh more about the quality of your data rather than the quantity of your data. I, I think Andrew Ng had used the term like data engineering at one point, and I know you've coined uh, a term as well. I think uh, data prep ops is, yeah. if I'm not so mistaken. So I, I can, I can, uh, I can draw some light on uh, on these different concepts, right? I mean, so first and foremost is like you're absolutely right. Like data quality is important, right? And so I think. About like four to five years ago, like uh, there was a real like a uh, realization on the market that okay, the quantity of data matters, but if my records are corrupted, it's not gonna help my model. So, uh, I, I think a lot of companies did a good job of promoting data quality, specialized in data quality. I think we want to take the concept to the next level where it's not just about data quality; it's also about data value, right? And so the difference here is like think you know like a uh, just a simple example is like uh, if I'm building a uh, a facial recognition model, somebody sends me a picture of Mount Everest, it can be the highest resolution ever and hence be very high quality, but it will have no value to what I'm trying to achieve, right? I mean, so, uh, and so what, what's kind of challenging in like understanding value or assessing value is that you need to understand the, the context where that data is going to be used, right? I mean, which brings up to like not, looking at the data outside of like a, a better understanding of what's going on, right? So, Andrewing actually like brought up like, and so this is like a very recent term, like coined as data-centric AI. What data-centric AI actually is, is like the belief that uh, in order to make your models better, you should spend more time uh, or you should focus on trying to tune your data and improve your data as opposed to improve your models. So the reason that way that makes sense is like, We've spent a lot of time uh, over the last uh, decades on like understanding like how to build models the right way, tune the models the right way, uh, how to do hyperparameter tuning and choose the right architectures. But uh, people still see like basically data preparation as something that needs to be done manually, right? And so a lot of experts actually agree that by spending the same amount of time on your data as you would on your 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 model, you would basically see like a significantly better you know like improvements in within your model. So why not do that, right? Uh, and so it's interesting because like Andrewing like a, uh, basically coined the term for data centric AI about like a, a year and a, a year and a half ago. And it's, it's grown in popularity when uh, I actually started a lecture like four years and a half ago with basically like this, uh, this mission in mind. So I'm glad to see that there is like a real awareness on the, on the concept, right? So talking about data prep ops, data prep ops like takes the idea of data centric AI to the next level, which is basically like a data centric AI is essentially the belief that you should allow yourself to touch and improve the data instead of using that as a static object when you build a model, right? Uh, and basically what data prep ops is, is like the operationalization of data-centric AI, right? I mean, so it's a little bit like a, what ML ops is to model-centric machine learning, data prep ops is to data-centric AI. So it's like a series of tools and uh, basically like processes where uh, you're going to be able to like improve your data over time People usually think about data labeling because like you can improve your labels as you go, but there are actually countless number of things you can do to your data to try to make it more like better and more suitable to your model. Like 
curation of the data is one. Uh, you can think of like uh, applying data augmentations, generating the right synthetic data, collecting the right data instead of uh, collecting data randomly and then uh, narrowing down afterwards. You can even think of like a way of doing data-centric AI would be to identify records that are harmful to a model and, and try to take them off. So a lot, lots of like interesting things going on in the space right now. Incredible. Yeah, so that, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, th there's a lot that can be done to make the data that's being fed into a machine learning model better. And uh, just to sort of reiterate what you had just explained, there's the concept of data-centric AI, which is more about sort of tuning your data, just like you were tuned like hyperparameters in a machine learning model. But uh, data prep ops is the operational operationalization of that. So how exactly do you build an application, for example, that lets you tune your data and understand how high quality your data is and how you can improve the quality of your data. Now, I frankly don't know a ton about what that looks like, but it seems to me like a big part of that is having domain expertise and it may not be as like formulaic as maybe just analyzing a dashboard and, and, and digging through data. But part of me thinks that maybe it's about understanding like the context in which a particular uh, model may be applied and understanding, you know, what features are relevant, what features are not relevant. I'm curious, like, what, what does this actually look like in practice, like from a more conceptual level to yeah. a more practical level, like in an application like uh, Alexio, uh, which, yeah. uh, of course, to, to the audience or anybody who doesn't know, uh, Jennifer is the uh, founder of. Yeah. All right, perfect. So, uh, so basically, like, first and foremost, right? I mean, so this is true of all machine learning apps, uh, operations and tools you're going to have. It's like what you're trying to do is like provide engineering solutions for an iterative process, right? Because regardless of whether you're doing data centric AI or, uh, like model, you know, like centric AI, uh, what you're doing is like you're tuning your model, which means you're iterating, right? And so basically like that goes with like things where, uh, you need to keep tra track of like the changes that you made when you hyperparameter tune. You want to make sure that you don't try the same set of hyperparameters multiple times when you make changes and so forth and so on, right? I mean, so basically like, uh, maintainability, like reproducibility of the experiments are going to be things that you need to take care of when you do traditional ML ops, right? Now, if you touch the data, same thing applies, right? I mean, so it's like now you're in a situation where as you build up your, your data set, you're going to make some changes. You're going to see what happens. And then you're going to say, I need to add more data, remove data, find problematic labels, modify them, and so forth and so on, right? I mean, so the basic things apply as well, where you're going to need versioning. You're going to need a way to store, like, the data that was used. Think of, like, uh, a situation where you're curating the data. You need to keep track of, like, I tried this, this didn't work. So you need versioning of a data set. You need to have the traceability of what was already tried, right? I mean, so, uh, for example, like the Alexio platform has a, um, uh, a label versioning system because like when you're going to fix your annotations, you're going to make changes. You're going to have several copies of the labels for, for the same record, right? And so you need to keep track of like what were the changes that were made, right? I mean, so when it comes to data labeling, you're going to have like, um, uh, you know, labeling instructions you're going to send to the labeling company that are going to, generate the, the labels for you and so forth and so on, right? I mean, so it's a lot about uh, the workflow first and foremost, right? I mean, so it's like the difference with like regular 
ML ops is like instead of like modifying the model, you're gonna modify the data set, right? And then you're gonna keep a, like create feedback loops and so forth and so on. So a lot of the tools are similar, but whatever you know, like uh, things or issues you see with like uh, keeping track of the model, you need to apply the same things to the, the data, right? The other part, so the way that we function, we're, we're, we're very focused at first on narrowing down the data that matters, right? I mean, so the original premise of, uh, of Alectio was you collected 10 million pictures. There is no way that every single one of these 10 million pictures are gonna matter equally, right? Uh, and the idea is like the information is not equally distributed everywhere. So you want to find like the places in your data where the information is there hopefully in a way that a subset of the data actually covers the same amount of information than the entire data set, right? Uh, and so in order in order to do this, right, I mean, so we, we have our selection engine, of course, it's uh, complicated to explain like how exactly this works, but tries to like build up or like identify dynamically which data is likely to be helpful. But then we're talking about selecting raw data. So you need to annotate that data, right? I mean, so basically you have a, a workflow where it's like, I found 500 records, which I guarantee are very likely to help your model, right? Now we're going to send that to a labeling company, right? And so this is where the expertise enters, right? I mean, so it's like, who should do the annotations? How quickly can do they do this? Like, there is also the cost optimization side of things, which is like, you can always send that to the most expensive labeling company and trust that they're going to do a good job. But maybe you don't need that level of performance. Maybe you can do... Maybe you can do well with less than this. Maybe you need something that's extremely specialized and you need, like if you're doing a medical imaging, you're going to need doctors to take care of this annotation. So basically, like the way we resolve this is uh, we build an entire marketplace of labeling companies where uh, we do some sort of like a resource allocation uh, like system for, for data labeling, right? Uh, and so that helps pair the right company and the right problem with the right labeling company based on their availability and so forth and so on. You can imagine a situation where the labeling process is automated. If your use case allows you for you, for you to do that, it can be like a, a pre-trained model. It can be a, a weak supervision uh, kind of problem. If somebody is uh, interested in looking up what that is, right? And then when you get that, it needs to go back into the system. Your model needs to know which labels it needs to rely on or whatnot. Like there is a, you like you can also induce like a, a feedback loop over there where it's going to be like a, okay, I got those 500 records annotated by a company I, I was recommended, but how do I make sure that this, these are the correct labels? Uh, is there a way to automatically audit? So there are many different ways of doing this. We do that with anomaly detection to try to identify like a, what is likely to be an outlier it doesn't mean it's wrong. It means like uh, you may want to invest a little bit more time making sure that this is right because this is gonna be data that's critical to your process, right? And so, and so the the entire orchestration, like for example, like one of the challenges for us is like you're taking somebody's data and sharing that data with a third party labeling company who's gonna annotate the data, which means you have an entire privacy layer. Which you know, like basically, like a, you know, like a, you need to make sure that they only have access to the data that they're supposed to have access to for a certain period of time. When they send back the results, like permission needs to be revoked, right? And basically, everything needs to be traceable for compliance issue, security, data security issue, and whatnot, right? I mean, so it can take many forms, but it's like whatever tools we ever created for ML ops, going from like a 
model versioning, traceability, reprocessability, deciding when it's time to retrain the model and whatnot needs to be applied. But on the data set, which comes with additional challenges, because now you're talking about like a, uh, for example, our label, label versioning system is like a, it's a record level because of course you don't need to re-annotate every single record every single time. Interesting. And so it, there's a lot of different players in this ecosystem, it feels like, that participate in the entire data labeling process. And uh, I'm curious, like, what does it look like in terms of like integrations? For example, um, data catalogs. A lot of uh, organizations nowadays have data catalogs to uh, manage their repository of data and have an understanding of you know what features they're able to collect. And uh, maybe even the health of particular features. Yeah. And then you have like the labeling teams, the folks that you're sending the data to that'll label the data. And uh, What is the integrations for a tool um, that's in the data prep ops space yeah. look like? Yeah. No, so for, for you, like generally speaking, like data prep ops has different flavors, right? I mean, so basically, like a, you know, like a, uh, I think... What makes us unique and what we've done really well is basically like a pretty much what you say, like the ability of like the, the workflow, right? I mean, so basically like taking on the one hand, like the way we proceed is like a user has an existing model, a raw data set or raw data stream. It can also be like a data that continuously keeps coming in. It can be a synthetic data generation process, right? Uh, and on the other end, basically what we're trying to do is like guarantee that their model gets trained with the best data possible, right? I mean, which involves the best subset, but the best, best labels, the best augmentations being applied to that data set and whatnot, right? Uh, of course, there are some parts of it where you have all the tools that do a really good job, right? I mean, for example, a company like Trifactor is going to do really well on uh, helping you identify like the features that you should be using. Like you have some other tools and processes you can use to like identify missing data. Typically, we focus more on like taking like a, you know, like basically like a reducing a data set and uh, like a in, in size and, and uh, not so much on selecting the columns or selecting the features because as you said basically you can integrate the sort of tools and basically like a, take like a whatever data like makes sense as an input and basically our goal is to manage like a and, and coordinate orchestrate everything right it doesn't mean that we know how to do everything right i mean so basically like you can imagine that uh, you know like a, on the labeling side of things like once we identify like here is the five percent of the data that really matters you can still plug and play whatever annotation tool makes sense for your use case. You, we have situations where uh, the customer is uh, doing something very specific where they have the experts in-house to take care of that, uh, that annotation layer and whatnot, right? And you're absolutely right in the sense that uh, the future is going to be like plug and play together eventually in such a way that you actually have like traditional ML ops companies, right? I mean, like data robot or uh, like H2O or, or whatever, where they help you build the right model, uh, but they don't give you tools to like decide like really like which data should be used, what you should collect or whatnot. And then on the other side, ML uh, or data prep ops company, because when you plug those together, you really have an end to end where what ML ops companies technically do is like build the best model possible for a specific data set when data centric AI in general and data prep ops companies are trying to like build the best data set possible to go with a specific model, right? 
And so once you combine both together, you really have this never ending cycle of like uh, optimizing both at the same time. Awesome. And, you know, I, in the ideal world, uh, an ML company would have a high quanti quantity of data, but they would also have high quality data. Do you think one's more important than the other? So it's it's like look we've done a lot of research on the on that topic right I mean so basically like the the answer is like it depends on the use case right I mean so basically like there is a uh, it's essentially a trade off right I mean generally speaking so uh, we we actually did research on like basically like how much worse can you allow the data to be until you know like basically like the question is like uh, is it better to have ten thousand records that are annotated perfectly and really high quality versus you know, like a, a data set of 50,000 records where only 95% or 90% of the data is annotated properly. And so uh, uh, it's interesting because you have some models that are extremely sensitive to whatever is wrong. And so you would have like a handful of harmful records and it's going to take your model off completely, right? I mean, and so uh, when you're dealing with that type of model, which are extremely unstable, you're probably better off having like a high quality data set, even that is more, right? Uh, when other situations you can have the opposite, right? Uh, the other kind of interesting, like, uh, uh, situation over there is like, uh, it's also a cost kind of trade-off situation over there, right? I mean, because normally when you annotate data, right, what, what happens is that in order to ensure high quality, uh, you don't generate like the, the labels just once, right? I and mean, so imagine you're doing autonomous driving, you're working with images. What uh, labeling companies usually advise you to do is like to have that data re-annotated three times or five times by five different people. And then you take the average, right? And so once you take the average, you can assume that basically if there was an outlier, uh, it should be gone, right? I mean, and so, uh, uh, and so that, that avoids like, uh, you know, like, uh, any bad players or like accidental mistakes or whatever. But now if you do this, it's like you're annotating the same data set five times, right? I mean, so basically like you're, you have a huge trade-off in order to get the right quality in terms of cost, right? I mean, so, and then if you choose to annotate or re-annotate only three times per record, right? Uh, obviously it's going to be cheaper, but like the quality, like obviously like if there are mistakes, you're more likely not to catch them if you do this and whatnot, right? I mean, so, and uh, yeah, I mean, so a company that has a lot of money and a lot of data can afford to annotate the entire data set five times, even though, with the looming recession, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to agree to agreeing to do this anyways. But uh, yeah, it's like I think it's high time that the industry like also like uh, starts focusing like on the on the trade offs like from a from a financial standpoint because otherwise you can have like magnificent models, magnificent applications that, that don't bring money to the organization organizations that that build them. Makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, in, in in terms of just general telemetry to help gauge the quality quality of a particular data set and uh, also like the quantity in in terms of is there enough data here what what are like some normal measures to evaluate and make decisions on okay like this data is good enough or this data um is we have enough of this data yeah no, look, uh, again, depends on the type of data. It uh, depends, like, basically, like, some people would say, like, uh, you know, like, uh, as long as, you know, like, uh, uh, I don't have missing records, like, the, the, the formatting is correct. I have, like, consistent, uh, information across my data set or whatnot. This is good enough. Some people are going to take it one step further, which is basically, I don't want redundancy, right? I mean, so basically, like, uh, uh, and then making sure that every record is going to bring, like, novel, 
uh, novel information, right? Uh, there is no consensus on like the right way to measure quality because it really truly depends on the type of data and what you're trying to achieve with it. So the take that we're taking like with our approach is like we're trying to select data based on how it impacts the model, if, if you will, right? I mean, so basically the idea is that for me, the best measurement is basically like, look, if a subset of data truly helps and you can actually prove and you can measure that there is a true like differentiation and there is like a boost in the performance of the model at training time. Uh, you, you can assume that this is good data. This is not only high quality data, but it's useful data, right? And it's like valuable data that's, uh, that's, that's going to help the model, right? And so for me, like this is the strongest measure. It's like, let the model decide for itself if the quality and the value is high enough that the data should be used. And that's, that's really like one of the, like basically our selection engine within the Alectio platform is trying to do. Got it. Got it. Um, very, very helpful. And I just want to sort of switch gears and talk a little bit more about the benefits of having maybe a smaller quantity of data, but uh, higher uh, quality of data. And uh, I know you've written uh, about this at length as well, and uh, it's uh, part of the work um, that, that you do um, is shedding light on the environmental impact of having higher quality data and less data uh, to yeah. train models. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Uh, yeah. How does the quality of data have pretty direct environmental benefits? Yeah. No, so, so uh, look, like it all goes down to like basically the more data you have, the more space you need to basically put this. And so at some point, like the only option you're going to have is like dump everything on like a a huge database, uh, a huge like S3 bucket somewhere, right? Uh, and basically like this is gonna, you know, like, uh, obviously like, uh, mean like additional energy for a data center, center somewhere, right? I mean, so we're way beyond past the times where you could put all of your data in a, on the CD-ROM or on the USB key, right? And then basically like now it's like, and it's not gonna get any better, right? And, uh, yeah, I mean, so basically like the, the issue we're having is like, um, uh, actually something that's interesting to point out is that a lot of the data centers nowadays are not built in cold places and a massive amount of the energy used to run those data centers are actually going into cooling of the systems, right? I mean, so in other terms, like it would be like more environmentally friendly to have like data centers in cooler, cooler places like Alaska as opposed to having them in, uh, in California, in Texas, in Florida, or wherever, you know, like, uh, uh, South Belt state, like, uh, we, we usually put them, right? So, but anyways, right? I mean, so it's like, so that's, that's one aspect, right? I mean, the more data you collect, the more data you need to store. And so basically, like, you need to put that eventually in the data center somewhere. The other side of this as well is like, the more data you have, the more you're gonna have, you're gonna need like computational resources to train your model with it, right? I mean, so, uh, obviously, like, there are, there's like a, a cost, uh, situation or impact over there because like, uh, means like you're going to have like more data means like larger EC2 instances, longer training times. And so higher, higher cost if you're using like a, a, a cloud, a, a cloud company, right? To, to host your, your training process. But same thing. It's like it consumes electricity, right? Unfortunately, like very few of those, you know, like, um, uh, you know, like, um, like cloud resource providers actually use clean energy. There is commitment from. Google and Amazon to go clean, but that was traditionally not the case up to now, right? I mean, so it's a, makes a, 
it's, it's something that people don't necessarily think about when they do machine learning, but we're actually pretty wasteful, right? I mean, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting to, to know this. So, yeah. And so one thing that I usually like to point out as well is basically when you look at industries in general, right? Uh, the most polluting industries like, agriculture, like uh, the clothing industry, the fashion industry, right? I mean, smart cities and whatnot, right? Our cities in general, everybody's trying to reduce their carbon footprint, right? I mean, so it's like they, they have higher carbon footprints, but the tr it's trending down, right? When on the, we're on the opposite end on the spectrum where to some extent you could say like the, the amount of like a uh, carbon dioxide that's generated by the big data industry is not that large, it would be something of the order of like two to three percent, but it's going up and it doesn't show signs of stopping, right? And so I think uh, more awareness to, needs to be drawn to, to that problem. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, incredibly important. I've, I've read a few articles here and there just highlighting the uh, amount of energy that some of these models consume, some of these larger models that are pretty popular. and. Um, it, it's it's mind-boggling. It's it's like you you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be such a large carbon footprint from these AI companies yeah. and uh, even some some of these you know blockchain uh, mining uh, yeah, companies absolutely. as well. But uh, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling and uh, it's it's good to be able to uh, sort of focus on that earlier rather than later, like you said, since the trend is only getting worse right now. Um, and, and in terms of uh, you know the economic impact that this has within organizations. So organizations that may want to focus on their data quality, um, does it give them any sort of le leg up when it comes to like the yeah. impending recession? So just, yeah. uh, That's so, so it's, it's very interesting because like, so I, I literally like the mission of the company when I started was like, so I was trying to solve uh, the same problem I had faced as, uh, you know, like a head of machine learning, right? And namely, like, uh, not being able to, you know, like, uh, allow my, my data scientists to basically, like, train the entire models, like, with the entire data set or whatnot. And so, uh, basically, like, I wanted to be able to achieve the same with less, right? I mean, so, uh, uh, and so it struck me as a huge problem in the sense that as it becomes easier to store data, uh, like obviously like people are trying to store whatever they can. And then you're starting to have this sort of discrepancy on the market where if you're an Amazon, you're a Netflix, you are a Google, right? I mean, basically like you're going to collect a lot of data and you can afford to do that and you can afford to build models with this. And so those are the same companies that are promoting the big data movement, right? I mean, so I actually call that the big data lobby, right? Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, right? I mean, you have the smaller companies that, struggle more with putting the right place, like a uh, processes in place to collect data. They might not afford to keep everything. They might not afford to keep the data for too long, right? Uh, and uh, as we keep going, like you really have like this huge discrepancy coming up, right? Where smaller companies have less and less of a shot to make it in AI compared to larger companies, right? I mean, so the mission of like everything that we do was really like to democratize AI by making AI more affordable. And I know what better way to do that than reducing the amount of data, right? I mean, so if tomorrow like somebody can, uh, and you know, look, we know we're able to do this, but there's still a, a huge like perception on the market that you need as much data as possible, right? Uh, and I really want to see this shift between like big data and big information. That's the way I call this, right? I mean, so basically, like, uh, uh, and, uh, really enable smaller companies to, you know, like, uh, 
trust themselves, believe that they can do AI even with smaller data sets and reach like a very good results regardless. I see. And, and, and that sort of thinking of this data quality push as being almost an equalizer in the AI space. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Obviously, there's economies of scale that exist currently with these large companies. And um, so th that, that's, that's really, really interesting. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about um, uh, Alexio, and I hope I've been pronouncing it right. It's Alexio, right? Perfectly right. So in regards to Alexio, what is it that you're most proud of that the company has worked on, built, done uh, since inception? And what are you most excited about moving forward? Yeah. No, so look, like the, I'm, I'm proud about everything we've done because we've achieved something which is really unique, which was like, remember, like we started the company like three and a half years ago. There was no talk of, you know, like data centric AI that wasn't something popular. In fact, when I, I was pitching investors back in the days, it's like, what is this? And, you know, like big data is the future, right? I mean, so it's like, uh, and, uh, not only that, but the technology necessary to truly understand how and what data impacts a machine learning model literally did not exist, right? I mean, so basically like everything, all the underlying technology are, you know, like, uh, discoveries we made ourselves, algorithms that we wrote. And it's not something that you could find a paper for. And it's not something that you could find, uh, you know, like an open source library to just integrate in your process, right? I mean, so I think we've achieved like a magnificent, like a progress or whatever. Uh, one of the things, so we started the company with like uh, this concept of active learning, which is like, see this as incrementally growing a data set. And even though this existed back then, like the way that you would grow the, the data set was really brute force and arbitrary, right? And we replaced that by a machine learning model. So we literally like open up like, uh, uh, the, the way to like additional research in this space, right? And what I'm most excited about right now. So hold on. So, uh, what we like basically we've been talking like so far about like the problem of like, I have too much data. I need to narrow it down so that I can save money, I can save time, I can do things more efficiently. In fact, there is there is also another value proposition, which is by reducing the amount of data, if you can read, get rid of the harmful data, the data that basically like uh, uh, sets the model off, right? Uh, technically, you could get a better model with less data. Right? Uh, now we're starting to look at the opposite side of the problem and the spectrum, which is like, I don't have that much data. How do I efficiently collect or generate the right data, right? I mean, so uh, we're pioneering like a new technology called uh, synth like active synthetic data generation. So, and this is something that can be applied for uh, data collection as well, which is essentially to say like, look, you have a small data set. Right now, like basically like the, the only option you have is just like keep growing this by, you know, like if you're an autonomous driving company by driving around the streets of San Francisco until your model gets better from it, right? Uh, but now if you knew that the data that truly helps the model is the data that you collect after 5 p.m., but before midnight from highways where you have a high density of traffic, right? If you knew that, you could save yourself a lot of hassle and you could be a lot more strategic about what to collect, right? Or applying this to, synth to, to synthetic data is like you would know what to synthesize, right? I mean, so basically providing this feedback loop on like, look, instead of like, collecting a ton of data and then figuring out what the value is. If you know from the get-go where like the type of data that carries the most value, then basically you can also save people a lot of money. And so uh, we've helped companies before like strategically collect the right data so that 
instead of randomly collecting data for a year, they can get to where they need to be in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Well, wow, that's that's fantastic. And and that's sort of uh, the image that came to mind for me was uh, basically I was, like setting up a new iPhone, for example, if it has the touch ID. And uh, when you're putting the fingerprint in, it'll tell you, I don't even know if it's real or not. Like, I don't know if it's accurate, but it'll tell you which parts of your finger it has a reading from, which parts it doesn't. And that really helps make sure that you're not giving only redundant information and that you're uh, sort of giving it all the information that it needs. And so I, I see a lot of value in it being very uh, aware of like the gaps in the data rather than spending a lot of time on yeah. stuff that isn't so Yeah, valuable. you know, actually, actually one thing I would add there, which is like a really interesting space for me, right? I mean, so it's like, I see the market and basically I'm going to say like, uh, you know, like the, the fear of a recession is going to help us get there faster. But so what we've been doing so far is what we call machine learning, right? I mean, and so see machine learning is like, here is the data, you feed this into a model, you expect the model to make sense of it, right? I mean, so basically that's what, uh, what was, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like, uh, made, made us feel like, you know, like it's almost like, you, you show books to students without curating, right? I mean, basically, you're just gonna, you know, like, uh, the belief obviously is going to be like, how can I make the student better by buying more books and showing them more books, right? Uh, I think we need to enter, and this is already happening, what we can call like the machine teaching phase, right? Which is actively acting on the data because this is what data centric AI is all about, right? I mean, to basically like, uh, take active, like, uh, take actions so that the model can get there faster by being a teacher to the model instead of just like passively feeding data into the model, right? And so that goes by feeding better data, curating the data. It actually also goes into like a, um, strategically boosting the model by acting on the activation function that you should be like looking at or whatnot. So it's like things that we don't do, we don't do yet. I don't know if we'll ever do this, but like uh, I, I really hope to see this shift on the market in the in the next couple of years. Wow, I love it. Machine teaching, the next era of uh, machine learning. I, I, I love it. Um, so Jennifer, do you have any advice that you want to share with anybody listening to the podcast today? My word of advice for young professionals and you know, like whoever's interested in machine learning is really like, look, it doesn't matter like how wonderful your model is or whatever. I think we're achieved like a lot in machine learning over the last few years. But uh, if we cannot convince like the organizations we work for that they can do these things uh, efficiently for, you know, like an enrich ROI, uh, eventually they're gonna stop funding us, right? I mean, and so I think it's really important for people to realize like, look, uh, we need to learn to be more efficient. We need to be more cost efficient, be aware of the impact of what we build for our organization that goes through cost. It goes also through ethics. It goes through, uh, a lot of other things. So, I mean, this is another, you know, kind of, a kind of shift I hope to see in the market among young professionals to be like more in touch with, you know, like, uh, what they're building, like, uh, how what they're building is, uh, is impacting the world, the society and the companies that they work for. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. Really appreciate you taking the time and uh, best of luck with uh, all of your endeavors moving forward. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.